Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And today, we're dangerously likely to talk about infrastructure. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. So Terrell, in an article from Politico, Democratic leaders are beginning to seriously look at changing up the presidential primary system in calendar. So far, the idea has been to have South Carolina and Nevada go first instead of the overwhelmingly white states of Iowa and New Hampshire. The point is to give states that better represent the entire country um, the opportunity to go first rather than have overwhelmingly white states hold that kind of power and sway over the presidential primary. Mm -hmm. Democrats are also looking at the possibility of having multiple states have their primaries on the same first day. So far, President Joe Biden, South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn, and former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada are discussing the potential overhaul. Terrell, I want to get your reaction, but also how do you think changing the Democratic primary system in this way will affect the Democratic Party and the presidential process? We still have super delegates. Like, does it really matter if we change when primaries happen? But also, is this really giving more voice to the marginalized populations or is this allowing for them to be drowned out later? We give a lot of attention to Iowa, right? That's the kickoff to primaries. They do a caucus. It's a little bit different. It's a gut check to understand where things are. But at the end of the day, remember who wins Iowa. Who, I mean, who won Iowa this last time? Pete Buttigieg. And he didn't even, he made it to South Carolina, lost South Carolina handedly. And that was it. So I think my concern here is while the intent is good, is it actually going to do what they're hoping? Or is South Carolina, which has been credited as the the, um, buoy for the Joe Biden campaign, just going to get drowned out now of, oh, he did really well there, but Iowa happened and he still got drowned out or they were looking for a different set of people. I don't know. I, I have some cautious suspicions moving forward with such a change. Do you think that it makes more sense to not only have maybe South Carolina and Nevada be first or I guess, do you think there's a, there's a, uh, uh, a real difference made if all the primaries were like, or the vast majority of them were actually just on that first day instead? Hmm. I think so. But I also, I, I think to the still and, not to give way to the Bernie bros to think that I'm supporting their initiatives because I actually support superdelegates. But at the end of the day, the Democrats still have superdelegates for the purpose of having some skin in the game, right? Yes, we have a superdelegate can't or a superdelegate margin can't outweigh the um, voice of the people. But when you have that type of group who can come out and do endorsements, who can say, here's who we're voting, uh, those rules have changed a little bit, but who can come out and say, here's who we are casting our support towards. That has a lot more of a shift than moving primaries around and hoping that marginalized voices are uplifted and that carries the end of the day. I mean, and I'm, again, not arguing to get rid of superdelegates because look at the Republican primaries and look at what that has turned up over the last 
couple <laughs> of elections. It has not been good. Superdelegates are good. But I think my fear is you're going to have a South Carolina come in and it can't, if it's the first group, it can't shake up the game. It can tell you, here's who the best choice is, but are people actually listening to South Carolina if they're first? Where I think they listened a little bit more now because it happened in the middle. And um, you got more people to report from South Carolina, Nevada, to say, we want this individual. And look at how he's polling with these ethnic populations or these age groups or these um, demographics. When they go first, it just becomes easy to pretend like, oh, yeah, that happened. But again, Iowa. I really wonder, um, kind of to your point there, if this past year has been a unique situation Mm, because the conventional wisdom is that Iowa and New Hampshire do hold sway. If you're winning the first two, like you have some momentum. And I don't think that's untrue. Obviously that didn't, uh, really help any one candidate this year. And in South Carolina going for Joe Biden really changed things up. Mm -hmm. But do you think that might just be because of the uniqueness of the year? Uh, it was more of a, it doesn't matter who's in it as long as Trump's not <laughs> kind of, kind of vibe. I would argue, yeah. uh, maybe not the whole vibe, but some of it for sure. And so I guess I'm like, I'm curious, like maybe having South Carolina there in the future is a real game changer. And it, this yeah. year was just a weird, unique year. Absolutely. I, I definitely think there's room to explore and have the conversations. I'm, being honest, I'm really happy to hear that Henry Reid is a part of those conversations and movements forward. Um, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later when we get into the main segment, but I have my opinions on Chuck Schumer. And <laughs> while I might credit Henry Reid with... Big fan of going, Henry Reid? Yeah. Like, while I might credit him with going nuclear and causing some of the issues we have here, it can't be denied that as a Democratic... Um, minority leader, he ran the Senate and did some really impressive and and monumentous things and had a really great pulse on where the caucus was. Um, So knowing that he's a part of the conversation and that he's at least helping navigate what that means in Nevada, what that means in, in South Carolina and what that means abroad, I take more value than the New York Senator who is pretending to be a majority leader currently. (laughs) <laughs> We're going to have to get into a future episode where you just rant about Chuck Schumer the whole time. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. <laughs> Jumping into Japan, um, researchers are sounding the alarm on climate crises as they just recorded the earliest cherry blossom bloom um, in 1,200 years. As Washington, D.C. has tourists travel in to see the beautiful cherry blossoms, a lot of researchers are paying attention to Japan and noticing that even though the time frame for the peak bloom shifts every year, they're noticing that in recent years, those peaks have become earlier and earlier, where traditionally um, you would see peak bloom around mid-April, we're starting to enter late to early March. A lot of researchers are highlighting this as early signs that the climate temperatures are shifting and warm seasons are happening earlier. And a lot of graphs you're seeing how over multiple decades, there's been ebbs and flows, but in modern eras, 
we've slowly gravitated closer and closer to um, earlier parts of the season. So my question for you, Caleb, specifically, are we getting to the point where we're too late? And if we are, what things do we need to start thinking about from a climate perspective um, to start righting a lot of wrongs that we have? Okay, first of all, Whenever you said peak bloom, I kept thinking you were trying to say Pete Buttigieg, even though that made no sense at all. Infrastructure. <laughs> Trains. Secretary Trains. Mayor Pete. <laughs> oh, uh, I think the, <laughs> I think the uh, uh, answer to your question is an undeniable um, yes. We are getting uh, pretty close, if not too close. Um, to, uh, there's no going back now. Um, I mean, scientists have continued to warn us and Mm -hmm. I I don't know what the number is now. I feel like the year gets closer to us being over the line every year. Um, but I think it's within the next couple of decades, maybe two or three decades. And, and, you know, I think this year has been a really interesting year with climate change already for 2021. I mean, we saw like the, the freezing storms in Texas, um, that led to mm-hmm. lots of tragedy and also highlighted how bad our electrical grid is. But it's just the worse that these storms get. And now we're seeing that the, some of the life, some of life's um, processes are starting to become either delayed or, or they're happening at way different times than they should. Like California's like wet season is now happening about a month after it normally does. Um, and this can all be attributed to climate change. And so I think we need to really start, I'm no expert on climate change, don't get me wrong, but we really need to start as a whole society, like individually, it's great if you're doing stuff, but the whole society, we really need to come together and, and make some changes in not only our culture, but our way of doing things and, and how we operate, whether we're a business or even just um, uh, a family of four living at home. Uh, we need to, we need to do, we need to implement things that aren't contributing to this climate change we need to think, do things that are protecting the environment, that are protecting Earth itself, um, and re- even even reversing climate change because uh, ultimately uh, we'll be saving ourselves with it. Do you think that? Do you think that that perception and perspective is being received by the public, or do you think that we have work to do? and helping people understand how serious this problem is becoming. I think with every issue um, that is important uh, uh, yet um, feels kind of doomsday-ish, I mm-hmm. think the public is slowly starting to understand this a lot more. Um, I don't, these kind of things never, especially when you have one side that just has outright said that they don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, these kind of things, like people, I think know deep down that it's real, but it takes a while for them to accept that. And, you know, just in my short life, um, where I've understood that climate change is a real thing that will probably affect me when I'm older and my children. Um, Mm -hmm. I have seen the people around me get more and more in tune to even simple things like recycling or just climate change in general and talking to me about, about, oh, do you see the storm? Like, 
it's kind of the new normal that storms are worse because of climate change and the people that I know. And it feels like on the news and everything, I feel like that's more, we're more in tune to what climate change is doing to us. I just think we need real leadership. And I mm -hmm. hope, I hope Biden's part of that. Um, we need, we need real leadership to kind of show us the way of what we all need to do. And it's probably going to be through government programs of whether that's recycling or, or, uh, climate infrastructure, green infrastructure. Um, I think we really need world leaders to, to understand the threat of climate change, that it threatens all of us. It's not, it's not a partisan issue. It's not uh, even just a single country issue. It's all of us. And we need to find a way to come together and work together. And I think we're warming up to the idea more and more every day. I would concur. No pun intended there. <laughs> <laughs> you puns never. <laughs> so... Moving uh, more to the Middle East, we're going to talk about Iran for a second and the Iran nuclear talks. Uh, for our viewers who have been watching the news lately, you've probably heard the Iran nuclear talks and the nuclear deal come up several times. Uh, per the New York Times, the Iran nuclear talks have just started again for the first time since Donald Trump first pulled the U.S. out of the deal back in 2017. The talks aim to get the U.S. and Iran back into the deal before Trump pulled out and enacted sanctions against Iran. The talks will not be easy. Iran reacted negatively and forcefully to Trump's decision and began to enrich uranium past the limits it had agreed upon in the deal and began to more aggressively support its allies and militias in the Middle East. Terrell, obviously we have been hearing about the Iran nuclear deal ever since President Obama began talks with Iran several years ago. Do you think it was a good deal? And if so, do you think that we may have ruined it for good when Trump pulled out of it? I really hope I don't have a political political career after having this pod. Um, do I think it's a good <laughs> deal? <laughs> um, I think the deal owns nuances to diplomacy. Would people want more? Yes. I, I, I think everyone has a mindset that a nuclear-rich Iran can cause destabilizing issues in the Middle East. But mm -hmm. you can't go into a negotiation expecting yourself to get everything that you want, and especially when Iran is making a very valid concern around their energy sources and their need for some level of um, uranium and nuclear power. So I think when you actually look at the meat of the deal, I feel like that's a failed Trump title. Um, when you look at the meat of the, the agreement, better, um, you recognize that attention and time was paid into for Iran to come to the table was significant in its own. But for them to sign the agreement required for them to feel that there was some recognition that they they deserved or they should be a part of this communication, right? And the other powers to be that were a part of that agreement recognize that you can have you can have nuclear power without having nuclear weapons. So if you agree to allow us to check and be a part of and look into all of your sites, we can ensure that you're under that threshold while you're still able to power your people and support the people of your country. And I think for me, that mattered more. Um, I don't know the damage that the Trump administration is going to have on our foreign policy, on our domestic policy, 
on our legacy, honestly. I'm I'm thankful that an administration is taking some efforts to re-enter conversations and continue to have some type of stewardship as a country. But um, I really don't know for that last piece what the impacts of the administration will have. And I say this while also knowing that there have been conversations that have said uh, the United States is becoming like a pendulum. It swings from one side to the other. So does it really matter if we get an agreement now if we just know that the pendulum might swing the other way? Yeah, this is a great point you brought up. And I'm just kind of under the impression right now. I also uh, don't know the answer to that question either. Of course, my own question, I don't know the answer to. Um, I am kind of under the impression that with specifically the Iran nuclear talks and Trump pulling out of it, I really think that the Biden administration should be willing to say, Hey, like they should be the, be the first ones willing to get back into it. Mm -hmm. Like they should come to Iran with that. Um, Iran has stated over and over again that they just want the deal to go back to normal, which we both know it's not quite that simple. Um, But I think it might be a lot easier if the U.S. shows some humility in this respect and goes back into it or offers to go back into it um, as before and takes the sanctions away from Iran. Um, But that's a great question. I don't know what happens in the future. I don't know the damage that Trump did. Um, Technically, the deal is still going with European countries, but Iran broke it when we broke it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not... I don't know how in tatters this is. So far, I've heard that the Iran has said that the talks have been constructive in Vienna. Um, so I, I hope that's a good sign. Uh, but I don't I don't know what the damage is that Trump has done. I don't know if we will know for a while. For those following our itinerary, we are headed back to the United States with some actually important breaking news. Um, the Democrats might not have to gut the filibuster. Recently, um, the parliamentarian has issued that in a ruling that um, Democrats could be allowed to use budget reconciliation once again and are not limited to once um, this session. Specifically, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer highlighted that while he would prefer legislation to be done in a bipartisan way, um, he recognizes that they have to go big. And he appreciates the fact that they have some options, even if the Republicans can continue to obstruct. Recognizing conversations we've had on this pod and recognizing that the filibuster and budget reconciliation continue to be at the forefront of legislature's minds. Caleb, what does this mean? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I think that the the parliamentarian um, uh, uh, opening up kind of this rule a little bit allows Democrats to get more of their agenda done, um, even though it's still through budget reconciliation. And to me, that still doesn't mean you can pass like the most meaningful policy change, but you can pass a lot of things that still change the minds of Americans. So like mm-hmm. part of this infrastructure bill, which we'll get a little bit more into later is a lot of green infrastructure and um, creating jobs based off that and showing the American people that it works, I think will be really important. And that's obviously something great that comes out of a reconciliation process, because as our, our viewers probably already know, but serves as a great reminder, 
uh, budget reconciliation is a process where you can basically do anything that affects federal spending or the budget um, for the government. Um, but like a policy, a, like a policy that's not, that doesn't really affect spending shouldn't really be in there or can't really mm-hmm. be in there to turn up to the parliamentarian. Um, what does this mean though? Uh, I think it means that, that Democrats very simply said, Democrats just have more opportunity to get, I don't know, infrastructure done. Um, Biden actually has two parts of his infrastructure plan. And the first part, uh, could get done this time. And if it succeeds, maybe the second part, which is more, uh, more human infrastructure than the first part, um, can get done next year. I, I think, I think it just gives Democrats more opportunities to get their agenda uh, done, which I think is vitally important. Um, now, if I'm looking forward and maybe in several years, if Republicans control all the bodies of government, um, what would they use it for? You know, they would probably use it for tax cuts and stuff like that, but I don't really know uh, uh, what else they would use it on that affects federal spending. Um so that's probably more of a deep dive on a later conversation. Well, it's funny you mention um, the other side of the aisle, and it was actually one other piece I was going to bring up. Mitch McConnell highlights that the party is headed far left, and they're being audacious and ambitious, and they're bending the rules, breaking the rules, even rewriting the rules to do everything that they can um, to get policies that Americans do not want. Do you feel like there's a risk right now that the Democrats are running into or giving fuel to um, the just Republican talking points that can potentially do harm for them later? Uh, Maybe, but I feel like anything in politics today is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And I really think that Americans seeing... Um, the effects of infrastructure, of COVID stimulus relief, and whatever else that we end up passing through reconciliation and or if a filibuster is gone in the future or doesn't exist. Um, Mm -hmm. I really think that Democrats right now are playing to uh, what Americans want. All their, almost their whole agenda right now is very popular amongst voters, including Republicans. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think Republicans can try to define a narrative on all this stuff. But at the end of the day, if Americans are seeing this in their pockets or maybe someone got a job because of the infrastructure bill, or maybe someone has better health care because of the infrastructure bill. um, I really think that that does outweigh narratives um, because maybe the narrative the Republicans make isn't the reality of how people are actually affected. And our hope is, is that, they're positively affected and that a benefit of that might be, well, elect us again, if you want those popular policies to be passed and to work. Kind of like what you said um, when we were talking about the American Rescue Plan, the COVID stimulus relief bill, you said, this is um, the government working for the people. We've kind of forgotten what that feels like. And I think that a lot of, especially this infrastructure plan is more of that. Um, So I think, Obviously, Democrats need to have their own messaging and all of that. Um, but I think that some of some of these actions uh, really play into the hands of Democrats um, and really the people, because, again, these are really popular. Like people want this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Sounds like the Democrats should be hiring you to do their met- messaging campaign. <laughs> I don't think I would come up with a good message.
<laughs> I wouldn't spend as much time going against Republicans as I would be talking about the benefits and how this affects you and your wallet in the country as a whole. So today, I'm proposing a plan for the nation that rewards work, not just rewards wealth. It builds a fair economy that gives everybody a chance to succeed and is going to create the strongest, most resilient, innovative economy in the world. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America. Unlike anything we've seen or done, since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. In fact, it's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. On March 31st, President Biden announced a $2 trillion infrastructure plan that will include $621 billion for roads and bridges, $165 billion to public transportation, with a lot of that going to Amtrak, it would also go to electric car charging stations, water systems like eliminating all lead pipes, high-speed broadband internet for everyone, retrofitting homes and buildings, plugging oil and gas wells, updating the seriously old electrical grid, uh, expand Medicaid coverage for caregivers, put more money into schools and child care services. It will also encompass job training, violence prevention programs, military veterans hospitals, pandemic preparedness, and new research for global warming. Another part of the bill actually calls for the passage of a different bill for unions, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which is a pro-union bill. Biden plans to pay for this through a corporate tax rate hike from 21% to 28%. It used to be at 35% until Trump's tax cuts lowered it to 21% a few years ago. Terrell, the biggest takeaway, I believe everyone across the whole entire media and political world um, agrees that Biden's definition of infrastructure is not just about physical buildings and roads, it's also about people or human infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we'll get more into the depths of this when an actual bill is written. Right now, it's just a plan um, that Biden has announced. Um, and of course, we'll do a le legislative lowdown segment with Torrance uh, for this. Um, but with that, maybe we should talk about a little bit what the plan is and why this is important. Um, so for now, what's your reaction to this? Um, about time. <laughs> How many administrations have we listened to talk about, oh, it's infrastructure week, and then nothing happens? I mean, one president said he had the greatest infrastructure bill of all time, and still haven't seen that one. Um, <laughs> no shade, of course. Classic. I, I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot offline, and we've talked about it with Torrance. It's hard not to recognize that the current state of America is one that is not universally felt. You have a pocket of individuals who are critical to the economy, who are critical to the development of this country, who are living, and maybe this is inappropriate to say, but who are living in what feels like the 1910s. They're, they're living with large acres of land. They are doing the work of individuals who are in the agricultural sector, but they don't have access to broadband. They don't have access to the same levels of information as 20 minutes down the road in uh, uh, Pittsburgh might or Phil uh, Philadelphia. And I think 
actually having a conversation about how we're connecting one another as Americans matters. It matters with this divide that we're seeing in um, partisanship. It matters in this inability to understand that the way of life and the way that American life goes is divergent and can have different pieces. It matters, like you mentioned, in Joe Biden's perspective, that it does have a human capital perspective, not just a financial and and um, economic impact perspective. Yeah, and I think like what's great about the infrastructure plan, and um, keep in mind that that everything I said is an, uh, a not inclusive list of everything mm-hmm. that's actually going to be a part of it. Um, but Biden has made it very clear. Um, through words and in some action already, um, that infrastructure is also an equity inequality thing. And I, I think we saw that um, when there was a big highway project, I believe, in Houston. Um, hmm. Houston, I think, or maybe some other Texas city, I believe it was Houston. Um, that Secretary Mayor Pete, <laughs> I like it when I call him Secretary Mayor Pete. Um, <laughs> So Secretary, <laughs> Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> um, uh, so uh, basically words. put the put the hold on because it wasn't it wasn't going to be an equitable equitable project. It wasn't going to um, actually help the communities that need it most of all. So the hold has been put on that project, and I think that kind of uh, culture. And, and kind of policy direction from the administration will be seen in an infrastructure bill like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just adds all the more reason of, of kind of to your point, finally, something like this is happening. Yeah. I think something that can't be understated, even from my, my perspective, is one of the reasons I can feel good about this is because I, maybe it's... Um, just a perspective that the administration is giving off, but I inherently feel like this will be done in a, an equitable, appropriate way. I, I think if you were to say that there was going to be highway expansions and railway expansions, and you were just to speak that to Americans, specifically minority Americans, that would bring up some caution, some hesitation, because we have throughout history been the population that had neighborhoods just demolished just to build new exit ramps or to expand highways or to find new outlets to connect different major cities um, to one another. And I, I think what you just mentioned is a great example of this feels right. It's good that it's finally happening and it's good that there's this human capital piece, but it also feels like there's an onus from the American government that um, we can do better, we can be better. And when we make expansions, we can make those expansions in a way that positively impacts everyone and doesn't negatively disadvantage anyone. We can do better, we can be better, and we can build back better. I set you up for that and I'm kind of sad about it. (laughs) No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that infrastructure, especially, oh my gosh, it's been 
talked about in every administration, but we haven't, it just, we just haven't been able to get things done. And mm -hmm. that's, it's frustrating because like, I mean, I don't know like what it's like where you're from in Michigan, uh, but in Idaho, uh, you know, the roads that are good are, you know, in the, in the downtown areas usually, but as you start to get out of those places and out of those cities, um, the roads kind of suck. Uh, they need some serious work on them. And it's just like, where's, where's the money going? But it certainly doesn't help that transportation or infrastructure costs have gone just through the roof over the years. I'm not, there was some, something I read a few weeks ago about, it's like, if you build, I believe a library in mm -hmm. Los Angeles, it costs like $120 million. But if you build if you, right. <laughs> but if you build it in Italy, the same kind of library, it only costs like $15 million. Hmm. And it's like, how, how did it get so crazy in this country and what can we do to bring it down? And I don't know if this bill addresses that, but I think it's definitely part of it when we talk about equity and equality and actually finding the money to build our country back in a better way. Yeah. And speaking as someone who wasn't born in Idaho, the roads there are not that bad. They they just... Depends on what road you're on. None of the roads in Idaho are bad. I mean, well, granted, I have very specific roads that I travel, but you guys do chip selling every single year, and you... Idaho has an investment in infrastructure versus a Michigan where I... I before this podcast was... Um, coming back home and had to actively avoid potholes that were big enough to engulf the car I was driving like huh. that. It's that type of equity that I speak to. And this isn't to harp on Idaho, which I like to do, but it, <laughs> go ahead, do it. The weather that it's the weather that is experienced in Idaho and the amount of driving that happens in that location versus a Michigan are so vastly different. And um, while you guys might have a couple roads specifically, oh God, where is it? Um, there's there's a highway um, if you're going to, and apologies to everyone who's not familiar with Idaho, but from they Boise, <laughs> it's true. You all should be. We're from Idaho, so you should be too. Anyways, um, <laughs> <laughs> There's a road that goes from Boise, where we are currently located, to uh, uh, the Sawtooth Mountains, which are gorgeous mountains. And mm -hmm. I always, um, if you take, there's two highways that go there. If you take the one that goes specifically through Idaho City, I just think that highway is trash. It is. Really? There, once you get past Idaho City, it just goes downhill once you get into the mountain passes. And it's like, good grief. But... Um, I mean, it's, again, it's like, it's wintry up there. You know, they get several feet of mm -hmm. snow and those mountain passes, I guess they're mountain passes for a reason. So like, I understand it, but it seems like there's some other, uh, um, <clears throat> it seems like there's some other roads that get, uh, uh, more priority than others, yeah. which is always the case everywhere. Um, but, uh, uh, this highway, I just don't think is, is fantastic when you get up there. Yeah, I was going to highlight Eagle Road. I know that Oof. it's not traditional that Eagle Road is one of the bad spots, 
and I'm sure by this point, listeners are like, I don't want to hear about all these brews in Idaho, but this one specifically, um, this winter was so abnormal that I, I did recognize that the road just cracked in weird ways. Um, but by the time it warmed up, they had already refilled all of the cracks. They have paved it over and made it feel better and they're getting ready to chip seal it now. And that that's kind of to my point, right? Of mm. I can name multiple streets and roads and even highways in Detroit that have been under construction all my life. Ohio, I-75. The first day they broke ground I-75 was, I want to say, November of 1994. And they are still working on it to this day. Um, it's those types of things that I'm excited for and happy that we are hopefully going to finally be able to invest into and not just say like, Oh, it's not expansion. It's just restore to it's restore and expand. We're going to equally invest money to ensure that these major uh, expressways that get you from Michigan to Florida, that get you from Chicago to Los Angeles have the type of support and monetary um, uh, improvements that are necessary versus what we deal with now. So I want to kind of get into a little bit more of the, of the bill itself. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, Joe Biden, when he announced this, called this um, basically a jobs bill. And I kind of wanted your reaction on whether you think that's the smart way to go with this or if there could be more that can be tacked onto that message, then, then it's, it's, it'll create jobs. I think this is the attempt to this is an attempt to break the whole this is just socialism message, which I don't really know. <laughs> um, but I, I did see a really interesting article that compared this proposal to um, the New Deal and made a point to highlight that it's nothing like the New Deal. We're in a very different time frame and we have different needs but something that i i appreciate it from that article and something that i just appreciate at large is it is a jobs bill and what better time to unveil something along those lines than during one of the most unexpected job downturns in american history because of a pandemic now you have individuals from our, our low-skilled labors or from areas that um, aren't anticipated to come back who are desperately in need of support and in need of some sense of security. And if the U.S. government has the need to build and create, why not capitalize on that moment? I agree with that. Um, some of the other parts of the bill are like water systems, like eliminating all lead pipes in America and updating, <laughs> yes, seriously, and updating the electrical grid and even adding electrical uh, car charging stations all over the map. Uh, ha- what is the importance of this kind of infrastructure? I mean, for GM, this is telling them that they actually have a future since they're moving towards electric vehicles only by 2030, 2032, <laughs> somewhere in that range, um, which I don't I inherently support. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine that that these big car companies that are starting to move towards all electric vehicles don't have a plan in place to input some charging stations. 
Oh yeah. I think the the concern with charging stations is like, how do we put them in places that are more off the map? And that's, that kind of touches back on my first point and to the GM point too. I mean, the reason I say I don't inherently support that is the oil industry has a very large capital specifically in the U S government. And to think that a shift is just going to flip that switch and say, yep, we're done with oil is just inherently ignorant in my personal opinion. Um, but it also calls me back to the financial crisis of um, the 2000s where every auto industry moved to, well, the supply and demand says we need to have um, SUVs and these bigger vehicles because people want those right now. And gas prices went up. Those vehicles weren't asked for. And you saw the auto industry come to a standstill. And I, I have feared that a lack of diversification can cause bigger issues, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, to the to the point on charging stations, I think I think too, and I spoke about this at the onset. We are living in an America that is aggressively divided, and while one population might feel that it's important to move forward. It's important for information sharing, for there to be internet, for us to move to greener and better things, which I do agree with. There is a population that is not there yet, and they don't have the infrastructure or support to be there. And for me, the challenge here and the concern is um, the this bill and anything that we do moving forward, just like you mentioned with charging stations, can't just be a we're going to give you this and do this and move on there needs to be an investment in how do we build up these communities not changing their way of life not forcing them to own into or buy into a new york model or california model but really understanding where they're at where their needs are at and ensuring that our investments there are supporting the people as they move along um i got into a really really in-depth conversation here with a friend at home about, or maybe it was while I was in Boise, but it, about the fact that our education system is still rooted in the 1960s and still rooted in these mindsets that aren't helping our generations move towards what the future can look like. And this is going far beyond the principles and policies of this proposal. But I, I do appreciate and think that that human capital piece is key to ensuring that this country can build back better um, <laughs> in a successful way. Yeah. And that's, that was kind of my last question for you was um, do you think that Biden's definition of, of infrastructure to include human infrastructure uh, makes sense, especially for this moment? Absolutely. But I'll push that back on you because I just went on a little rant about it already. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think it's really important. I look, what I like about this bill is that and really what I like about so far, um, the big ticket items that have been pushed forward, uh, which has really only been the American Rescue Plan. And now this Mm -hmm. is they have like a feeling of this involves everyone. Doesn't matter who you are. uh, You should be a part of this, too. And 
And I think that kind of, that, that vibe, that feeling that I'm getting from it is really refreshing mm-hmm. because for the last four years, we've seen policies and stuff that, that, you know, you know, that they're exclusive. They're not inclusive to all of America, but they should be. And that's, what's so, so nice about some of these, um, some of these ideas and plans that the Biden administration is coming out with. And does it tackle every issue? No, of course not. But is, mm-hmm. is it a great place to start tackling all those issues? Absolutely. Um, and I think human infrastructure makes sense to be a part of that. Infrastructure can mean a lot of things. And why wouldn't we not only rebuild physical concrete things and roads and bridges and getting rid of lead pipes, why wouldn't we do that while also investing in in us at the Mm -hmm. same time um in helping us be more successful it's good for everyone and that's that's not only the importance of it that's also uh what i really appreciate about this bill yeah it's it's funny you mentioned that too because something that this administration has started pivoting towards that i i was skeptical of but i'm starting to understand more especially after this conversation um is the meaning of bipartisanship Recently, the administration, specifically Joe Biden, came out and said a bill doesn't have to be passed by both sides of the aisle to be bipartisan. It can be bipartisan in its nature, doing the work for the American people and having support across both demographics or all demographics, I should say. And um, I, I think to what you just shared, too, of that human capital and that piece of it's that 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 is bipartisanship. It's the it's the true understanding that this work is being done for all Americans, for all people, not just X group or X political party, whether mm-hmm. Republicans or Democrats jump on board and vote and do what's necessary. I do think that that's a key part that this administration is trying to carry forward that I don't know if we've seen in modern um, times. And I might get called out for that because obviously the Obama administration um, issued a very large recovery act and helped bring us out of an economic crisis. But even then, and even some of the policies that came out, I think this administration is making a real intensive effort to say bipartisanship is what is good for America, not what's good for the political parties. 100% 100% agree with that. That concludes our, our little preview of a future uh, legislative lowdown that details infrastructure. Uh, stay tuned uh, to learn more. Well, Caleb, you know the deal. Take us on a tangent. Well, Terrell, I might have two small ones. Um, the first is, I know I'm, I'm the worst, uh, Matt Gates sucks. (laughs) And that might be the only tangent I have today for those who haven't been following Matt Gates is, uh, I actually don't know where he's from, but he's a Republican representative. Oh yes, that's right. He's from Florida. He's a representative from Florida. uh, Only Florida would create someone that crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to learn more about him, feel free to Google him, but I kind of advise against it. Um, Matt Gates has recently, uh, uh, I guess the New York Times actually reported that Matt Gates is under investigation for possibly violating sex trafficking laws. 
um, by paying a miner to travel with him across the States. And then Matt Gates went on to Tucker Carlson's show on Fox news and like added like 50 other things that nobody actually knew about and just made it way worse for him and tried to implicate Tucker Carlson. And I think the funniest thing about that was after it, Tucker Carlson literally goes, well, that was the weirdest interview I have ever conducted. And I don't really understand any of it. <laughs> and I know that part of it's Tucker's trying to save his own ass here um, from being implicated, but I just think that's hilarious. Um so of course, of course, this is all investigations. We don't actually know if Matt Gates did it. Um, but there's been a lot of stories about how Matt Gates is trying to play like the Trump card, like because Trump got away with all that stuff by just basically being, you know, Trump. Um, and Matt Gates is just there's not really anybody who's like Trump, even if they try to be. And Matt Gates is one of those wannabes that is trying, but it's just not working. The other one I have is that. Uh, I keep seeing, I thought this was like a one, a couple of day, like kind of trend a couple weeks ago about how Biden's dog major, uh, mm. uh, nipped at somebody. Mm. Um, but Politico had an article the other day and it was about Biden's dog. And it was like, it was, a, it was about, oh, uh, since major bit someone, we can see like how the administration operates and what the culture is like. And I'm like. Are you kidding me? I just, just get off Biden's dog. It's an unknown environment. It takes a while for animals to adapt. He's not a bad dog. Mm -hmm. And we're still talking about it as if we know everything about how uh, the Biden administration works and whatnot. Like it claims that it's all stressful and major can't trust yet. And I understand that, but that's a lot of new people in a small space and there's COVID. So it's kind of weird with masks and stuff. So I don't blame the dog for being a little bit uncomfortable and untrustworthy. That doesn't mean that the Biden administration is operating a really culturally stressful work environment. And I just think it's really silly that we're taking all this information because the dog nips someone. Yeah. That's my little rant uh, for the day. Terrell, why don't you take us on a tangent? Well, it's actually funny. You mentioned the, the mass piece. I, I was out grabbing food and there are dogs and someone asked that question of, is your dog okay with me wearing a mask? Do I need to take it off? And I had never thought about that. I never thought about the fact that oh. a, a person approaching a dog wearing a mask can be intimidating because the, the dog can't read facial expressions and it can just catch them off guard. Yeah. Um, so like I, you mentioned that about major too, of like we're in COVID, there's just a lot happening. That's a key piece too, of you have a rescue dog that is, um, coming from a background that we are not aware of. No one has shared uh, this dog's history. And we're trying to make a lot of presumptions about um, him. But even beyond that, it can be intimidating for a random human that you're still uncertain about that you, you've only smelled once to walk up to you in an all black mask and you can't read their face. All you can see is their eyes and maybe their eyes look angry. All these thoughts. But that is not my tangent. My tangent is on the hypocrisy of the Republican Party, per usual. Um, <laughs> I just... In what respect this time, Terrell? <laughs> I don't... I I feel like it's everything. I, I It's the Matt Gates. It's the John Boehner. It's, it's everything. So, 
Um, former Speaker of the House is getting ready to re- release a tell-all book about his time serving for the Republican Party. And he's doing damage control, in my personal opinion. He, he's making an attempt to speak to what he experienced and essentially call out and say that the Republican Party is bad while trying to distance himself from being the leader of the party as it was shifting this way and pretending like he had no no space or capacity to do anything, which is just extremely frustrating for me. Specifically, there's a segment that was released from the book where he kind of highlights he's not surprised that the Obama administration didn't work in tandem with or collaborated with the Republican Party, because how could you when the Republican Party was actively saying that he was a radical jihadist who wasn't born in the States? And it's it's that type of language, it's that type of recognition that during that point in time, something was going wrong and you didn't say anything that just angers and frustrates me. Yeah, seriously. I will say, though, that John Boehner specifically, when he said, Ted Cruz, go fuck yourself, I had a great laugh at that. Anyways, that was a good on. moment. Still annoyed with it because yeah, Ted Cruz is still in the Senate, but I, I digress. But <laughs> even with the Matt Gates stuff, I find so much frustration that during the the primary, the election, this Pizzagate save our kids nonsense was rampant. I was on Instagram arguing with friends from high school and people I know and just all of the things. And um, everyone was saying, well, do you support sex trafficking? Do you support this happening against our kids? And I said, obviously not. I, I don't. I don't. At no point have I said that, but I don't support misinformation either. And you all are making it seem like only Democratic Congress people and senators are the ones perpetrating this, which just isn't true. There are literal pictures of Donald Trump in the same location that you're accusing Obama of being in. And now we now we enter Matt Gates and Tucker Carlson distancing himself. No rise and no huge conversations about sex trafficking, at least in any wire that I've seen from any of my conservative friends who thought that they had the right to talk about it beforehand, acting as if they were specialists and experts when they aren't. And it's those type (laughs) of frustrations of, can you be any more obvious that all you care about is the political wins that has just been driving me up the wall lately? And then people attacking me of, well, you just don't like my... Matt Gates, and this is obviously a smear campaign and he was being blackmailed. I'm like, he can be blackmailed and it be true at the same time. I don't understand how you are now making an argument for this man who potentially actually did all the things that you were livid at Obama for doing when there was no proof that Obama did it. But now you have real solid proof that Matt Gates did it. But because he decided to say that Donald Trump won the election and that, um, the Democrats are the Antichrist. You want to believe him more than anyone else. And that's, it's that, that just really annoys me. Yeah. You're telling me that you believe Matt Gates, the guy who still perpetrates the fucking big lie about how the election was stolen. And also was, I believe one of the 14 uh, representatives that voted to not condemn the Myanmar uh, military coup that happened, even though the, the military- only Senator, uh, the only senator, or I mean, the only representative to vote against um, the Violence Against Women Act that oh, yeah. explicitly had language against sex trafficking as well. Who knew? Who knew that when you go to such lows to perpetrate lies and hypocrisy and bigotry 
in a party that maybe you would actually attract someone who is a bad person. Hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, hate I think that's here. our show. <laughs> I hate it here. That's all. That's the moral of that story. I just hate it here. <laughs> I, I I would be remiss to not mention that I will uh, not be in town next week and therefore will not be on the podcast. So enjoy our other two favorite hosts, I guess, uh, Terrell and Torrance. <laughs> our other two. That was a low blow. Okay, I see. I'm kidding. Y'all are the favorites. <laughs> no, nah, it's definitely you. We know. <laughs> nah, I'm just that white boy that kind of stands in the corner. But you're also uh, kind of punny and funny, and you have uh, a like decent laugh. So, eh. Well, maybe we should have uh, the audience decide. Oh. Audience, text us or email us or tweet us or Instagram Go us. Go to Instagram and vote. your favorite is. <laughs> um, but anyways, that's our show. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week. <laughs>